Welcome to On the Road with Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer from the Idle Chatter family of podcasts. I invite you to jump in and join me. Along the way, we will get to know some really interesting people and their stories. Be it farming or firing orders, these folks are passionate about growing things or making horsepower. So let's get this bad boy fired up and head off to destinations unknown. Welcome, my friends. Welcome back to On the Road. I'm your host, Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer. And today's episode, uh, well, first of all, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And today's episode is one that's been long in the making, but is going to be a blessing to me. And God willing, it's going to be a blessing to you. Because the gentleman that I have on, as I guess he's coming from, uh, from Arkansas, and we were with Bluetooth through the soundboard. So we're doing this over the telephone. I did not have the opportunity to go to Arkansas to record him. But I kind of, I didn't feel I really needed to. Because in a way, even though we never physically shook hands, I feel like I know this man. Because this man has helped countless of people throughout the world to make their farms and their ranches more profitable through education on soils and conservation. And he had a television show on RFD TV for a number of years, and he's going to tell us about that called on, it's called on the land, excuse me, out on the land. And I messed that up, right? And I watched the show, but I just called it On the Land. And he wrote a book, and I have his book right here, and it's a wonderful book, and we'll discuss that. It's called Out on the Land, Sharing Conservation Secrets. So before I mess more things up, because I'm just a hot rod farmer from New Jersey, I want to introduce you to my guest, who is Dr. Larry Butler. Larry, welcome to On the Road. Thank you so much, Ray. Uh, Thank you a lot for this opportunity to share some of this, uh, some of my life story in conservation uh, with your listeners out there. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the authority on anything, but I know quite a bit about a whole lot of stuff, especially when it's conservation out on the land. And uh, that, that's where I spent my life. That, that was my profession. And uh, I call it my profession rather than that was my occupation, because the way I look at it as an occupation is what you do with your time to earn your living expenses so you can do the things you want to do or things you have to do or feel you need to do. A profession is what you commit your life to doing. It calls you forth to study new areas, become knowledgeable in those areas to a point that others look to you for answers. That's why we go to a doctor. He's a professional. That's why we go to a lawyer. He's a professional. So an occupation occupies your day's working hours, whereas a profession occupies your waking hours. And uh, I've had people tell me, well, I thought you retired because I've done a lot of conservation things since I retired from the uh, USDA's uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service. And I said, well, I retired from my occupation, but not from my profession. Not from your passion, not from your passion. That's why you're on the show, because you're passionate. Well, thank you. And, and you are, too. I, uh, I was, We'll get to the show here a little bit later, but I just want to tell people while I'm thinking of it that, uh, you know, my show ran for four years on, on RFD TV. That was 104 original half-hour shows. They all ran for uh, an original showing plus three reruns. 
So we were on the air 416 times with those 104 episodes. When I had to, to cut the show off, the very first email I got was from you. Oh, thank and, you. And it just meant so much to me. You, you thanked me for all those hours of being out there on the land and helping you and others to hear other farmers and ranchers talk about what they're doing. That show wasn't about what I knew. That show was about what the farmers and ranchers knew. And, and you know, an expert is, you know, hey, one, one definition is a guy that's 50 miles from home with a briefcase. Well, when I, I traveled a long way from home doing that show, and those people knew their farms and ranches well. And the whole idea was instead of me going ranch to ranch, farm to farm, like I did back during my occupation, uh, was for these people to tell their story so that other farmers and ranchers could hear it. So that's when, whenever I would tell somebody something, they'd say, well, who's done this? And I would tell them who had de- done it close to them, a neighbor maybe, maybe somebody across the county, and because they wanted to talk to them. They wanted to see why they changed what they were doing, how did they make those changes, what were the pitfalls, what were the advantages. And so these conservation stories during my show came from the people doing the work on the land, out on the land. And, and that uh, is so, so important because I just want to give the audience a little backstory because you and I know the story, but they don't know the story, is that I was flipping around uh, one day, whatever, the, the it's not a knob anymore, on RFD TV, and I saw this show and uh, with you, your show. And I said to myself, all right, well, I'm going to sit and watch it. Uh, I'm going to sit and watch and see what it's all about. And then, but it's so important for me to convey publicly to the audience how you have blessed my farm and my agricultural experience. So I know that you've blessed countless of other people the same way. Because first of all, number one, is that I was always, you know, when you're growing up, your parents tell you one thing, and we, we're fe- my family and I are fierce patriots. My, my father is gone, my mother is gone. But NRCS, that's a government agency, and my, my nickname is Butch. And my dad, because his name was Ray, also say, Butchie, never let the government on the farm. <laughs> <laughs> let the government on the farm. So, you know, so whenever I saw this, a state truck go by or a county truck or town truck, I was always like, oh my God. So by listening to you, I realized that NRCS is my friend and is there to help me. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, something that I should be afraid of. So that was the first thing. The second thing is that you taught me the true meaning of conservation and understanding how conservation is to learn to learn about invasive species and you just changed my whole perspective on my farm and ultimately helped to make my farm so much more profitable and i just want to publicly thank you for that because i know and you have a wonderful book and we'll discuss it later on and in the back of your book you talk about how writing this book and this whole journey and basically the journey with the book but I could say it's your journey of the life of Larry Butler is that you feel that it's a calling from the Lord. And I know that you and I both share a faith as Christians and most people in agriculture do. But can you just tell us a little bit about that, about how you feel that this, felt that this was a calling for you to do this book and to do this TV show and to just get involved? Because you were going to be, according to your book, you were going to be an electrical engineer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a funny story, you know. Because in my book, I talk about uh, 
you know, things that I've heard all since childhood about conservation and, and being out on the land as a kid and, and all that and, and loving wildlife and going hunting and spending time at my and uncle's farm every summer and that sort of thing. And I never would have thought that um, I would wind up doing this because I had uh, math and science teachers in high school that said, hey, you really ought to be an electrical engineer. You've got the knack for all of that, and, and, and there's good money in that. So, so I go off to Texas Tech thinking that's what I'm going to do, and uh, it, it's a pretty detailed story, so I won't get into all of it, but uh, I heard seminars every Friday of my freshman year uh, from different electrical engineers, and they talked about their specialty. Some of them talked about uh, medical instrumentation they were developing. Others talked about antennas and and just all sorts of things. And I attended every one of those every Friday. And when the semester was over, I said, there's none of that I want to do. So I started wandering around through the college catalog and around the departments. And I said, range and wildlife management. I didn't know there was such a such a, a course in this. I thought you went off to be a game warden or, or whatever. It was a whole different thing. So anyway, I wound up going in wildlife management and took all the rangeland courses and everything with it. So that's how I got over into the conservation side. And then the rest of the book goes from there. But, you know, in this book, I attempt to tell part of my life story, the part that is dedicated to conservation out on the land. And I there in the back of the book, I think, and honored all those that helped me along the way. But the main thing is, I said, I thank God for his creation and for my life out on the land. And it truly has been a life out on the land, and, and it still is, even though we just have a little piece of, of the earth here. Uh, I, I was on a consulting job uh, last week uh, down in East Texas, and I just love it when I get those opportunities to go and listen to what other people's concerns are. And it never fails that there's something I tell them about some other place I've been on that really, uh, you know, works for them, or they think it will. So they want to try it. They want to do something different. But anyway, um, I thank God for those for His creations. I ended every show with this on the screen, Psalms 24.1. The earth is the Lord and all that's in it. And I truly believe that. He created the earth. He created everything there. And, and uh, you know, no one's smarter than him. No one can do more things than him. Uh, but you think about the, the order of creation. He didn't just say, okay, here's animals, here's plants, here's here's people, here, here's the soil, here's the water. He didn't just dump it all out there at once. He created it at different times and in the proper order. He didn't put an animal out there until he had already had all the plants established. And then he put animals out there. Well, that's what we do when we plant a new pasture or, or whatever, you know. We, we, we've got to have the got to have what they're going to eat. We've got to have some water for them to drink first. And then we can interject animals. And that's what the Lord did in his plan for creation. The only so, thing is he did it in six days. It takes me a lot longer. Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you got that right. It would take any of us a lot longer. <laughs> but uh, anyway, you're right. I uh, I, I am uh, not the, the uh, scholar of the Bible. I wish I was. But uh, I'm much more attuned to it 
and I have a much greater knowledge of it at this stage of my life than I ever did. Um, I always believed, always believed in God and His Son, Jesus Christ, dying for our sin, and tried to live my life right. My, that that kind of comes from my dad. My dad uh, was, was a very good man, and he took his family to church every Sunday, and every time they opened the doors on anything, and, and uh, somebody says, well, how do you know? How do you know when you're out here working with people um, what the right decision is? I said, I don't know what the right decision is because that's for them to make. But I do know that if you have character in your life, which I've heard that the definition of that is having integrity when nobody's looking. Right, <laughs> exactly. That That's good enough for me. Have, have the right character and, and just do what is right and your decision will be much easier when it's when it's based on good morals um, and what what is right in your life and and I had the background of growing up that I had I, my dad's gone too but uh, I lost him early but I've uh, never forgotten the lessons that he taught this country was built on that you know it was built on strong christian values it was built on by people with strong characters uh, I like to say they were strong characters with character. Exactly. And, had, a, and a handshake had, meant something. A handshake meant something. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we can run on, on the difficult times, but if you have character, you'll get through it and deal with people. And, and you know, we need more people with character to get out there and vote in their state, local, national elections. Oh, exactly. Don't let somebody else's uh, lack of character or, or low character judge and, you know, be the ones that sets up what we have to live by. It's up to us to do it in our daily lives as well as in our in our private lives as well as in our uh, public lives. And also to do the same thing as we steward God's creation. Because as farmers and ranchers, even if it's a small scale, even if you have a job in town and you, the good Lord has blessed you with an, with an acre, a half acre, whatever it may be, a small plot of land, the way you take care of that land, from my perspective, is going to show how, you're, how you respect the gift that God gave you to steward. So the talents he gave you, the talents or that soil, that land, those animals that he gave you. But what I would like to do, if I would like to ask your permission, Larry, because I have your book in my hand and I have a post-it note here. And as we segue into turning the clock back and the, the story of, of Larry, but I got to ask you, before I do that, I got to ask you, did your mother ever know that your dad went to the football game after she gave birth to you? Yeah, she did. She found out over the years. That was, oh, not right, that, not right away. I had to laugh right away. I said, well, she's all knocked out anyway from the anesthesia. Let's go to the football game. So anyway, but. Uh, you want to tell that story right now? Yeah, tell that story right now. All right. Well, my my uh, given name is Larry Dale, last name Butler. All right. So my mom and dad had lost a, a, a girl child at birth about a year and a half before I was born. And so the same doctor said, well, let's do a C-section with this next pregnancy. So that's, that's why she was knocked out. And back in 1951, when I was born, which happened to be Thanksgiving Day, by the way, so I've been called a turkey all my life. <laughs> But anyway, um, when she was born, or I was born, she was knocked out for like eight hours or better. And um, the doctor said, hey, uh, Nolan, that was my dad's name, Nolan. He said, Nolan, let's let's go over to Abilene, which was about an hour away, and go to the, the playoff game. Our high school was in a playoff game that afternoon. 
so they went over there while mom was knocked out. And when they came back, dad saw the baby in the nursery there and, and uh, me. And he went went to see mom and he walked in the door. And the first thing mom says, well, we didn't have a girl. They had some girls' names picked out. So we had a boy. So we got to name him. Yeah, yeah. Dad said, well, you've already done it. She says, what? He said, there's a name on, on the crib down there. Mom said, what is it? He said, Larry Dale. She said, we've never talked about that. He says, I know. Where did it come from? She said, I haven't got any idea. I don't remember doing it. So I'm just lucky I didn't get some really weird name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. butterfly. Butterfly. But, uh, butterfly. You know, yeah, so, or whatever. Yeah. 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 But, uh, that, you know, but I, I had to laugh because uh, lots of times uh, those stories don't leak out to the person who needs to hear it many, many years later. So, uh, but, yeah. but, but what I would like to do is that I hope I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I, I I have your book in my hand, and it has a beautiful, beautiful cover, a uh, beautiful sunset over uh, over uh, a body of water. But on page four, at the author's comments, I would like to share with the author, with the audience the, the what you wrote as the author's comment, because I really think that it's a perfect segue into learning about your walk with conservation and turning the clock back to you as a young boy and uh, and your escapades. And I think you had a 1964 Ford Galaxy and you raced some guy, right. but that's, that's we'll talk about that later. But I think this is very, uh, it's just so appropriate and, I want, and it sets the stage for our podcast today. So I'm going to read it, Larry. Drop, okay. Drops of water flow across a riverbed and go there only once in their individual journeys. Out on the land sharing conservation secrets took me across many landscapes in many states, each one ever-changing. I cannot go to the same places and have the same experiences which exist in my memory. The beautiful cover photo by Katie Hoskins is like that, as clouds, light, water, and other influences never remain constant. This location holds many memories for me as over 40 years of sharing conservation secrets began on a ranch just down river from this point. And I think that's so, that's so, that's beautiful words. And especially because life in so many ways are, is drops of water that flow across a riverbed and that time and is, is never, never, ever returned to us and never comes back. So what I want to do is even though I read your book, and I'm going to call you a friend, even though we never physically shook hands. Oh, yeah, we're friends, right? We're right. friends. So, but I want you to go back now, please. Turn the clock back as far as you want and tell us the story of the of, of your family. I know you lost a family mer- member in a twister, the dust ball, and how we, we kind of learned how you would go to be electrical engineering, but you had to have the passion for the land put on you prior to the day that you looked through that college catalog of classes. That's right. I mean, so so that's like, the, you know, okay, we, we, okay, that was there, but let's go backwards and you tell tell my audience okay. the story, please. All right. Well, before we do that, let me tell you a little bit more about that cover. That body of water is called the Devil's River, and it flows down through Valverde County, Texas, uh, into what is now Lake Amistad. It did flow directly into the Rio Grande. Well, the ranch you see, the hills you see on the west side of that river, I've worked with the people that used to own that. 
they passed on. And then on the east side of the river, the same thing. And if you were if you were looking at that cover right now, directly behind, directly behind you across the road is the gate to a lady who I'll tell you about later and how I came up with the title Sharing Conservation Secrets. But she was a huge influence on my life, and she's given quite a bit of, of talk in here in the book. So now let's go back from that. But And Katie Hoskins, oh, the photographer. She's a professional photographer. She sells prints. This print is, this is just a piece of a much bigger picture. And she posted that picture on her Facebook page, and I saw it. And I blew that picture up, and I ran to my wife. I said, here's the cover of my book. Because Katie, unknown to me, went down into that county and was taking photos and got this one, printed out a bigger photo with this. This is part of it, kind of taken out of the top center of the picture. And um, I called her up and I said, I, I just saw your picture and I want to know what I can do to have permission to, I figured she's going to give me a prize, uh, to use it as a cover. She said, I've never had a book cover. Go ahead and use it. Oh, wow. So, so I did, and, and uh, she sent me uh, one of the full prints, the whole picture, and uh, I sent her some books, and I've since met her, and, and she sold a few books uh, at uh, shows where she's selling her her, paint, her uh, photo. Well, that's the story on that cover, and it, it was another God thing, because what cover could I have gotten from the very land and the waters where I'd spent a very, very formative time in my young years. I was about 24 when I was working in that county then. So, anyway, we can go back further than age 24, of course. You uh, you mentioned the twister killing the relatives, two of them, actually. Um, I heard this story all my life. In uh, the mid-1930s, it was the middle of the Dust Bowl, in Texas, and the huge black clouds that you see from the historic pictures roll across there very, very frequently. It was a long, prolonged drought in, in the western part of the Great Plains. I mean, this went all the way from up in the Dakotas all the way down to Texas. It was a big, big thing and, uh, in the 1930s. And so my great-grandparents on my mother's side, their last name was Easter, they uh, had a farm in the southern high plains uh, out east of Lubbock, Texas, and they saw these black clouds frequently. And it got to the point that they couldn't do anything about it, of course, so they just said, well, here comes another one of those black clouds, and, and they just stayed in the house. Well, this one black cloud day, my great-grandfather stepped out on the porch and said to my great-grandmother, Mama, it's a tornado. And... Their youngest daughter, Thelma, was 15 at the time, and she was the only one still at home. Thelma's sister was my grandmother. Okay. And if she'd have been there, I wouldn't be here today talking yeah. to you. But but uh, he just said to her, we'll cover up Thelma. She threw some blankets and body across Thelma. The tornado hit and went by. And the evil part of a tornado is that it's so violent, and then it's gone, and it's peaceful. And it's like, what happened? And, you know, the house was hit directly. My great-grandfather was killed. My great-grandmother was killed. And Thelma was injured so bad, she was in hospital for months and didn't even get to attend her parents' funeral. Oh, wow. And 
So all my life, I've heard that story, and it was all about conservation and the Dust Bowl. And who I didn't know with those early, that early age, that someday I, I would be the state director for the Soil Conservation Service, now known as the Natural Resource Conservation Service in the state of Texas. I can't help but think my great-grandparents would have been really proud of that. They sure, they sure would. Wow. Did you ever Here have the are. opportunity to go back to that, to, to actually go walk that farm as a man? I, did who get to walk it? Did, did you ever have the opportunity to walk that farm that your grandparents died on as a man? No, no I didn't. It, it was sold, became part of another big farm, and you, I wouldn't even be able to distinguish okay. which part. Okay. Or anything. But I know in general terms where it is, and I've driven through there a lot. Okay. So I, I pretty well know, and I know where they're buried. And, and uh, then, then uh, my grandmother, that I said was gone from the home then, um, married my granddad, whose name was Dunlap. And uh, he uh, he was another person that influenced me a lot as a child. He uh, he was a teacher, and, and when my mother was growing up, he taught in little one- and two-room schoolhouses all over the Southern Plains. And so they moved around a lot. But there's a picture in my book of my mother as a child standing in front of an old lapboard house. That, that was the 30s. That's the way it looked. That's the way the farmers lived. That's the way most everybody in the country lived. It was, and you could tell they, they're just they're dressed like little poor pauper kids, as dirty as they could be and, and all that. So, you know, the soil, I guess, runs in my blood, uh, literally. Uh, from her, but um, my granddad went on to be a teacher and taught in a lot of different places and eventually larger schools. But at one point in time, he lived out on a Boy Scout ranch, and uh, our family would have family reunions there because it was a big, we'd do it when the scouts weren't there, and we could use the the, uh, the bunk hall and everything for all the family to stay. And he would take us out, we would, we would quail hunt, we would dove hunt, we would fish, we would do all these outdoor things. And I just thought the world of him. And as, as time has gone by, I've looked into that side of my family. And my fifth great-grandfather was John A. Dunlap. And John A. Dunlap was a printer in Philadelphia. And the framers and, of the Constitution, you know, were all in there. And, uh, but when, when the... Uh, uh, Declaration of Independence was written. You know, major thing now. They're 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 tyrants now against England, and so they need to get that word out to all the colonies. Well, John A. Dunlap, my great fifth great grandfather, printed what they called broadcloth of the Declaration of Independence that went out to the colonies and were voted on, and the colonies all said, "Yep, we're going to be an independent nation." Unbelievable! And, wow. My whole whole family goes back to that. And I was talking to one of my cousins on the Butler side, and he says, well, you know, we're related to the folks further back than that and, and others. I said, well, no, what are you talking about? He says, well, our grandmother was a Lee, and her her dad uh, gave me his name, and his dad, uh, well, I may have to go back another generation from there, was a brother to... Uh, Robert E. Lee. Wow. Now, that, if that's true, then my fifth great-grandfather on that side of the family was 
Lieutenant Major General Henry Harry Lighthorse Lee, the commander of the Revolutionary Cavalry. Unbelievable. So, so the patriotism runs in my blood. Yes. And soil conservation runs into my blood. And, and working for the government didn't, but Soil Conservation Service at that time was the agency to help people help their land. Yes. And, and um, there have been a lot of changes in it over the years, and they've got different, some different responsibilities now. But when I worked, it was to go to farm to farm, ranch to ranch, and literally say, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you and not your job. <laughs> Thank but, you. Uh, yeah, so... Anyhow, uh, that's one piece of, of going backwards in time in my story. But uh, as a little kid, uh, I was born there in Ranger, Texas. When I was one years old, we moved out to further west Texas, north of San Angelo. And uh, I went to first sixth grade to school in a little town called Bront. And those quote-unquote kids, they're all just like me, 70, 71 years old now. They invite me to their reunion. I went to their 40th reunion, the 50th reunion. We're probably going to have another one this fall. Wow. But those people, and and where did we get our bond? We got our bond by playing up and down the creeks and in the pastures, riding the bicycles down the dirt road, doing all these things that a kid in the 1950s could do. And we'd leave in the morning sometime and not get back till right at dark, and mom wasn't concerned. Their moms weren't concerned. All they had to do is pick up the phone, call somebody, and they say, "Oh yeah, so I'm right by here." So, so, you know, everybody could was watching out for all the kids that were out around, just doing what they do. But um, I had a had a great time as a little kid. Got in a little trouble out there when I was about three. My mom heard me shouting and yell, or not me, my yeah, I was. I was shouting and yelling and screaming. She thought I was hurt. So she went outside. Dad was digging a cellar or storm cellar okay. and he didn't have any steps in it yet just had a ladder going down in his hole well I had been standing there throwing clods at dad so there I was playing with the dirt and I was throwing clods at dad and he told me to quit or he put me down the hole and he did and that's when I started yelling to mom okay so he taught you a good lesson right he taught you a good that's lesson that's right that, yeah. that's what's all about and it didn't kill what I tell you and it didn't kill you. It didn't kill you. And I bet you, nope. you you rode that bicycle without a helmet and you drank some water out of a garden hose. And a creek. And a creek, right? <laughs> <laughs> and a creek. That that you know, but but that is so foundational and sadly that is the thing that you know we that we I don't want to go off on a tangent, seems to be missing in this country today. And and even I hate to say it, but even in the rural areas for my I travel a lot for business and for, I'm a frustrated Charles Corolt. I love to travel the back roads. And yeah. 20, 25 years ago, I, you'd go across a back road over any state that's in a rural area. You'd see a kid outside riding a bicycle, doing whatever, doing something. You know what I'm saying? Going fishing, whatever. They were outside. And right. now and now today, I could go on the equivalent roads, equivalent demographics, and you see no one. It's like a ghost town. You don't. You don't. And there's a lot of reasons for that, though. I mean, there there is more danger from society today. There's the evil side of society. Kids get kidnapped and this, that, and the other. And, and so there's there's some good reasons that parents have a, a stronger halter on their kids these days. But they are missing something from it, and their parents probably missed it too. So they don't know what it is. 
they're missing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so that's that's getting you back in time, and and uh, and I went on to right. We moved over back to where I was born into Ranger, and uh, and I graduated high school there, and then I went on to Texas Tech, which is really kind of where my my career started. But you know that fact that my great grandparents died because of soil erosion. And in fact, and, and one thing we haven't talked about is I write and perform a little bit of what I call Western poetry. Others call it cowboy poetry. I'm, I, I dress the part, but I'm really not a cowboy. Um, but I was driving back from a cowboy poetry gathering in Elko, Nevada, when I lived up in Oregon, and I passed what looked like an old homestead that had grown back up to sagebrush. And I was thinking about the Dust Bowl days. Can I share about a six stanza short poem? I would, I, I, I would be honored to hear it. Well, I call it the homestead dream. To the west they thrust as they felt they must, all their possessions dragging. To the west or bust through the rain and dust, oxen pulling their wagon. Their dreams were true. They believed them too, each man, his children, and wife. The big sky was blue in the morning dew. It was the start of their new life. With one milk cow and a team and a plow, they settled in their new home. But I'll tell you now, they just didn't know how to protect the sandy loam. The winter was long. Its wind held a song, the dugout cozy and warm. So what went wrong? The homestead's gone. This land wasn't meant to farm. They plowed the ground. The sky turned brown. They moved on and left their shack. Their walls melt down as adobe becomes ground. It's sad for us to look back. The winter wind did a strong fury sin, and the soil blew away. I'll tell you, friend, it's come to an end, the dream from their homestead day. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So I, 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 it's in your book. I remember reading that, isn't it? Yep, yeah, that is in my book. It sure is that and yeah. about nine or ten other poems. Yeah. But um, and I, I interjected some poems in my book in appropriate places where it lined up with subject matter. That's in the that's in the section right after the dust bowl. And then I've got others that didn't fit. I just created a chapter with about five of my poems in it. But I'm uh, I, I just love uh, writing. I love uh, telling other people about it. And I love being on stage. And uh, anyway, back to where I was. I went to Texas. Well, then we got to back up a little bit because wasn't the uh, as a young boy living through the because you're you're uh, <clears throat> older than I am. I say that respectfully, but <laughs> uh, but the the Cold War and the assassination of President Kennedy, I believe, had an impact on your life. Yes, it did. Um, I was in the Cub Scout in 1960 when Nixon ran against uh, John F. Kennedy. And I can remember walking up down that little town of Bronx and we had signs that said Kennedy, signs that said Nixon, and we were carrying along and, and vote for the man of your choice, just be sure and vote. You know, that's, so I've already talked about the fact right. we all need it. But anyway, so that's where that started, is to is do your civic duty, get out and campaign for who you want to campaign for and and vote your conscience on who you think is best for the job. Well, so that was in my mind. And then um, they had the election, and uh, he won, and he'd been president for, oh, what, two and a half years, I guess, by November of 63. Right. And it was 
my 12th birthday, November the 22nd, 1963. And uh, I remember our fifth grade teacher came to the back of my sixth grade class and my sixth grade teacher went back and talked to her and came back and they were both crying. And uh, she said, I've got bad news, bad news. And she told us about uh, President Kennedy had just been killed in Dallas. And that pretty much stopped school for the day. And, uh, you know, we didn't go home because parents couldn't come get everybody. They had a way to work was out. And some of them, of course, got off work and came anyway. But um, that that was uh, the, the world changed that day. I, I can't put it into words yes. what happened, but we became uh, we were very, very sorry it happened. I don't care which side of the political realm you're in. It was a sad day that that would happen in our country. But it was kind of like the little boy pulling his thumb out of the dam. And it broke. And now, and look where we are today. Yep. We have innocent kids killed. We have, we have uh, other assassinations. We have people marching in front of the, the Supreme Court. One guy goes there with a gun and gets arrested. There's just so much. And don't, I'm not against guns at all. No, I, no. I grew up with guns. You grew up with up guns. You grew up with hunting. guns. Yeah. I have respect for them. I've had the hunter safety courses and all those things. I've taught my sons how to handle them. And uh, so it's not about gun control. It's about it's about character in people. It's about control of of the evil through doing good. Yes. And and somehow or another we got to get this country back to that, but. Yeah, and since I mentioned guns, let's just go ahead and talk about that in just a minute. Sure, I remember you had a, a rifle. Didn't you have a twenty-two rifle or something, I remember? Well, that picture, I think, is with me and a shotgun. Okay. Um, I had, Dad had, when I was 12, he said, uh, which, that's funny, we went from my 12th birthday in Kennedy to guns. Uh, my, uh, my dad said, you can have, my single shot twenty two rifle and my fourteen gauge shotgun and when you're twelve. And we moved to the country at that same time. We moved back over to Ranger and we lived out in the country. And so the people where we lived there I could hunt all around there. Well, my dad didn't he wasn't a hunter, he wasn't a fisherman. He said, I don't like doing that because when I was a kid, that's how we ate. If yeah. we didn't catch fish, we weren't eating. And he said Fishing never was fun. It was work putting smallest of fish to the biggest of fish on the table. So he gave me those guns. That 410 shotgun was his dad's. And his single shot breakover uh, Stephen shotgun. Uh, 410 full choke. So now I'm in the country and there's a, a stock pond back ways, a quarter mile away from the house. A lot of doves. So doves Hunting was all done with that single shot. Okay. 410, and I was mowing grass in order to buy uh, 410 gun shells and, and uh, shotgun shells. And, I, and so I was very careful with my shooting. I didn't want to waste a single bullet or shell. And so I got really good with that 410. And, and uh, it had a real small pattern, that full choke. Well, I went to work at a grocery store in 16. And uh, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. 
And my phone beeped, I guess, that oh. somebody tried to call. Anyway, um, interruption, folks. But anyway, um, and I got, I got a, a job at a grocery store. And my first check, we went to Abilene, Texas, and I bought a 12-gauge pump Remington shotgun. This was in 1968 uh, with a modified choke. Okay. Well, so now I'm throwing a pattern out there well over twice as big as that 410 did. So they happened to be having a turkey shoot in town, and it always had a 22 uh, competition, but this is the first year they ever had shotgun. And so I saw that, and me and a buddy run back to my house and drove over there and uh, got my shotgun and some shells. And Dad said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to turkey shoot. He said, well, don't waste money there. It's a bunch from the gun club in Fort Worth. It'll be there winning everything. And so go out there, and you had to take three shots. It cost a dollar. You use your own ammo. You shot three trap uh, clay pigeons. And uh, then if more, there's 10 of you would shoot it around. And whoever tied just backed up five yards and did it again until one person won. Well, I first one I went in, I, I hit all but one target, and I, and I won. I won the turkey. <laughs> and so the very next round, I come in second. The very next round, I come in second. So in the fourth round, I won another turkey. And, and two is all you can win, so I quit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, these guys from Fort Worth were all arguing over which one of them was in the lead for the trophy. And uh, so they said, can we, can we shoot again? He said, well, we're about done. If you can get 10 shooters. So they said, well, what if we each shoot three times for three rounds? So, okay, but we're going to count all your shots into your percentage. Well, that's okay. And I said, well, I'll take that 10th round. So I put a dollar down knowing I couldn't win another turkey, and neither could they. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we shot, and we got done. One guy picked it up, and he told his buddy, I beat you, I beat you. And the organizer reached over and took the trophy away from him and said, I'm sorry, this trophy belongs to this young man right here. <laughs> so that, that trophy sitting on a bookcase across from me here in my office today from 1968. Wow. And what, it, what that lesson is, I, I know I've talked a lot for this one lesson. What that lesson is, is that preparation plus performance equals reward. Yes. And throughout my book, I talk about how I was pre prepared with good training, good experience, and everything before I was ready to move on. And so I was prepared. I did that job well, and I got rewarded by getting selected for higher level jobs. Yes. And and your rewards aren't always monetary. No. It's not always a new job or raise and pay or some grand prize or a turkey or whatever. Right. Your rewards come in many ways. And uh, they can just be a pat on the back. Hey, you did a great job, you know, or, or whatever. But uh, that theme runs throughout my book, even though really uh, it's, about the, it's about the conservation. Yes, and, and, and conservation itself is a reward because being a steward of the land and being a Christian, we all want to hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. And you, Isn't that the truth? 
and you can't have you can't you can't you 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 can you have to respect god's land and be a good steward of it and also the scriptures tell us you know cast your bread upon the water and so many times from my perspective people think that well okay if i donate money they think it's like a an annuity or a stock okay i'll give 10 i'll get 15 back and as you so aptly said is that the blessings in life the rewards in life aren't always material and the ones that are not material are worth so much more than the material things and uh, a good friend of mine if i could just interject has a saying he says there's two lives there's two banks in life there's the one bank you put money in and the other bank you put memories in he says the bank that you put memories in is worth so 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 much more than the bank that you put but you put money in and those memories that you are bringing up in your book and in the podcast today are really the value and have made you the man that you are and 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 god gave you that those those opportunities to learn because opportunities are put before everybody but we sometimes we don't learn from them and then you use those opportunities to help others so well done well done good and faithful servant well that's exactly correct that's the way to look at it thank you um you know when i got to texas tech and i got changed my major changed you know uh I didn't know how much I was going to need to know about plants. One of the first classes I took in the Range and Wildlife Department was, was plants. And it was everything from the forbs, the weeds, as you call them, and, and the different grasses and the different shrubs and the different trees. And we learned to identify them uh, as, as a whole plant, but we also had, had tests and contests where you just had a twig and a leaf or you just had a little blade of grass and maybe a piece of a seed head. And so you had to learn the intricacies of all these plants. Well, that was the first course I had, and then came summer. Uh, and I, uh, they had a job up at a Texas Tech farm up east of Amarillo that used to be there. Uh, and this one professor had uh, some research plots, and he needed an assistant research assistant up there. And I applied for a job, and I got it. And I had three high school kids who... Uh, to help me and unknown to me I learned a lot about personalities about how to supervise people how to be a leader things that I didn't even go up there for you know I went up there to just to earn money and do the job right well I had to teach them how and they these three guys were as different as night and day and and I didn't tell them this but I called one of them hippie one of them cowboy and one of them nerd yes I remember some reading that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and the and the hippie, he, you know, when you when you had to de- determine what these plants were from these clipped plots, sometimes you were just looking at a piece of a leaf and you had to put it in one bag or another bag based on the, the plant. So hippie, he didn't care too much. He, oh, okay, I must go there. Oh, this one must go there. So he, I learned, you know, okay, there's a guy just trying to get his bag full. He's not trying to do the job right. Then along comes Cowboy, and he's like, Oh, I know out on the land there, there's about 60% that should be blue grama and so much. So, so my blue grama bag is going to be heavier and this one's going to, so he, he was, he was doing part of the job, right? And this and the rest of it. And no insults to cowboys. I love my cowboys and people as people, uh, not, they got, most of them got really good character and integrity. But in this case, he was a teenager. I just called him cowboy because he wore a cowboy hat and boots. And so did I. Yes. But anyway, and then the one called Nerd. Now, 
he was very precise. But it took him forever to make a decision which bag to put these pieces <laughs> in. So, so there you've got another kind of work habit. Right. And, you had a, and as you go through life and you supervise people, you're going to have some of all of those. And you just got to learn what's their best talent and have them doing that job instead of this job, et cetera. So I, I was not only learned beginning my career out on the land doing work with the rangelands, but I was learning how to how to supervise people and how to lead them. And then I went on, got got done with tech, and got my my first job in San Angelo, Texas, as a soil conservationist. And I was upset. I want to be a range conservationist or a wildlife biologist. And my supervisor said, you're going to get your basic training, then you're going to go on to it. And he was right. Got all the basic training from engineers, biologists, range people, agronomists, all in about an eight-month period. Then they moved me to a place you've heard in the news a lot lately, Del Rio, Texas. Okay. And I was down there, and it was a great time. That's the county that that book cover was taken in, uh, name of the county is Valverde, but anyway, uh, I went down there, and that's when I started, you know, got some more training, and then I got got kind of turned out, there you are, go go help somebody, go learn something. So, I went to the person, that, as I told you, behind you, if you were looking at this book cover, yes. I went to her ranch, her name is Emma Jean Thompson, tell a good bit about her in the book. Um, and the first day she says, okay, so you're a range conservationist. So what do you do? What is your job? Well, she had had other range conservationists out there. She knew. But she was getting ready to teach me something. And so I uh, said, well, my job is is to uh, transfer technology to landowners. She goes, no, 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 no. Your job is to learn my secrets. And then... <laughs> Go across the river to to uh, the other place over there and share my secrets, but don't tell her they came from me. But in other words, my secrets are this is what worked here and this is what didn't work. Right. Find right. out what worked for her and what didn't, and I want to know them, but don't tell me they came from her. Go all around the county learning people's conservation, uh, learn their secrets. And so I did, and I learned to listen to those people, what worked and what didn't work. And that's how we develop our technical standards and specifications to tell people how to do it is by seeing what works and what doesn't work on the land. So you used and, empirical, oh, empirical and anecdotal data to, 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 to come to a uh, conclusion. Exactly. And um, the so when it comes time to title my book, I changed it from sharing secrets to sharing conservation secrets. Okay. And lo and behold, when I wrote it down, capitalizing all three of those words, sharing conservation secrets, huh, that's SCS. That's yeah. who I worked for. Oh, wow. Soil conservation, right. Soil conservation, yeah. yes. Wow. Perfect. Now, I'm going to ask you to go back a little bit. Now, so okay. when you went to go see this lady, I uh, forgive me, what was her name, Irma? Irma? Emma Jean. Emma Jean. Okay. And... Uh, 
so was was that the first person that you went was that the first ranch that you went to in no. official capacity let's hear about no. the first ranch that you went to so you got this young larry butler all right and the boss says okay go over there and see this guy so let's hear about your first the first one the first place you went to in a, an official capacity all right that's easy because i and there's a lot of places i went to before her but the first one, which is diametrically opposed to the story she tells you, yeah. um, my my supervisor, uh, my very first day there, he said, I hate to do this on your first day here, but I'm going to be gone for two weeks because my father's passed away. And so he left me there alone. And he said, here are some plans that I've written up with these ranchers. You just go deliver them, review the plan with them, get to know them a little bit. All right. So the very first place I go to, you turn off the highway, go through one guy's place, and then you go up to this other guy's place, and I can see the house sitting over there on the edge of the hill, and the road goes around the left side of the house and around the right side of the house. All right, the one around the right side seemed to have um, the most traffic look like, and I could see the tail end of a pickup. So I drive around to the right side, and there's a shut gate, and he comes out of there, and he's like, what in the blankety blank are you doing? <laughs> That's what my first encounter was. And okay. I said, well, uh, my supervisor, and I called his name, uh, asked me to bring this to you. He helped, helped develop this to you and told me to go over it with you. And he goes, well, you're here because of that zoning. There had been a zoning meeting the night before okay. that around Lake Amistad, which part of his ranch was in that. And he said, you're here to tell me how many sheep I can have or how many cows I can have. I know that's what you're here for. I said, oh, no, sir, I'm not here to do that. <laughs> you know, I, I can help you inventory your land and, and give you good, safe stocking rate, and you may be within it, and you may be above it, but it's what you do with it that matters, how you graze. And he goes, no, that's why you're here. I don't trust you one bit. <laughs> so my I, dad was right. My dad was right. Yeah. And so, and, and so, um, Later on, I met the guy that was over that zone. Everything, so that was, he was had a different personality than I did. But anyway, uh, uh, so I spread out this aerial photograph of this ranch on the hood of the pickup, and we're looking at it. And he goes, "What are? What is all this?" I said, "Well, that's a symbol for a livestock water pipeline, and that's a symbol for the trough and a storage tank." He said, "Yeah, I got a storage tank trough over there." And he said, "Well, what's this symbol here for?" I said, "That's a planned." pipeline that goes back here to this corner he said there's no pipeline there i said i know i said uh, mr so-and-so here I, I don't want to call his name so. yeah yeah uh, i said he uh, he said that uh, that you and him talked about putting one there and so that's a planned pipeline to put a trough there well we did talk about it but i never agreed to it and you can't make me do it with this i said sir this isn't about making me do it. <laughs> this is this is what you said you had planned to do and it's not there and if it's not there in 30 years that's okay it's your place well to come back around about 10 years later i was living somewhere else and uh, my, my old supervisor passed away so i went down there to his funeral and there is this man and he's looking at me like i know you yeah 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 and, and we go over to the widow's house uh, after the funeral, and he's sitting on the sofa, and he immediately gets up, comes over, 
I asked her who you were, and she told me, she stuck her hand out, I need to apologize to you for the first day I met you on my way. Wow. That had been over 10 years. Wow. Dad, and he said, I've talked to a lot of people about you since then, and you've done a lot of good here, and you've learned a lot here, and you've grown as an employee. And I'm like, man, yeah. nobody's ever given me an appraisal of my work is any better than that. That, that that's wonderful. That's a that's a humbling moment in life, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's when a, when you know, and what what good was I going to say after that? I never got a chance to work with him. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, 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 now just I'm going to just divest for a minute because being a New Jersey farm boy, I'm not familiar with. I mean, driving through ranch land out west, but what was the average size of the ranches that you would be working with? In that county at that time, it was 20,000 acres. Wow. Wow. And what was, that was the, the average? The largest. It was a 2 million, two million acre uh, county. And so the, there was about 109 bona fide ranchers. Wow. Now, there were a lot of people around town that had just a few acres and a horse or something, and they wanted help, and they demanded a lot of time, and they needed help because most of those small places – it's just a, a lot, you know, right. it's a feed out lot. But anyway, so the largest one there was probably 90,000. 9,000. But uh, there's a place I went on to work later in my career. I was an area supervisor in the Trans-Pecos of Texas. And I was a supervisor over about 11 offices on 23 million acres. And there was a ranch there. The land's actually owned by the University of Texas and leased by another guy. And the land had one pasture on it. it had a lot of pastures. But this one pasture had 90,000 acres. Wow. And wow. so you think, well, it needs to be subdivided. Well, yeah, but how much money are you going to be able to spend on fence subdividing right. that down and into the size? So the guy that was working at the county back then, got with them and says, I've got an idea how you can rotate your grazing and not be spot grazing one player area and the other is just growing up and going away. So what's that? He said, you got a windmill over here. You got water over here. You got water over here. You got a windmill over here. You got water over here. You know, right on down through this 90,000 acres. Turn all the windmills off except that one up there. And all the cattle will graze up there. Then turn it off and turn on the next one. And they rotated their grazing by turning the waters off instead of having a fence. Okay. Now, that has a downside, especially in today's hunting market, and that's that the deer and antelope didn't have those water trials scattered throughout. So that um, that can be fixed with some uh, little enclosures where the wildlife can get in, the cattle can't, and, and still have some water. But Plus, they also, in that dry country, they use things called a guzzler. Um that's where you put up a big apron of like sheet metal you might put on a barn, and you put you put a uh, um, oh uh, on the EV your house. I'm I'm going blank when it catches the rainwater it comes down to oh, like a gutter like a gutter like a gutter up, yeah yeah you put up a gutter at the bottom rain falls on that sheet metal goes in the gutter and then goes into a pipeline and goes into a storage facility. And you have a small trough coming off of that available for wildlife. And there's been a lot of that done out in West Texas uh, for wildlife. In fact, I helped put some of those in, or actually I observed it in one of my 
out on the land TV shows uh, with uh, the Texas Big Horn Sheep Society. And every year they build these two more in the dry mountains out there. And they've really improved and expanded the habitat of uh, the desert bighorn sheep out there by putting those guzzlers in. Because, you know, evaporation rate is horrendous. And you put it in a, a covered uh, storage and it doesn't evaporate. Okay. Yeah. I- now, where did, like, the gentleman that, 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 that apologized to you many years later, you spoke about a pipeline going across his land. Where would the water come from from that pipeline? Would you drill a well, or what? Where, how would that? Okay. Yeah, you, yeah, most of that out there, you drill a well, and you bring the water up, and either have a storage reservoir right there or somewhere, and then you dig, you have your pipelines underground, right. and, and then they have a float valve at a trough, you know, quarter mile away or however far it is sometimes there's multiple trials along you know quite a quite a distance but um and of course all that takes some engineering when you're in that rough rocky hill hill country because you you've got to have your elevation in order to get the gravity flow and so once you got it pumped up and in the storage then it's all gravity flow after that okay and it was electric pumps that ran the well pump yeah, generally it was electric then, and some of them were just starting when I was there to get some solar okay. uh, charging. But, uh, and and, yeah. and what was and then? Of course, there's also windmills. Okay. Uh, early early ones, earliest ones were wind, windmills, bringing the water up, and windmills just constantly pumping water into a storage reservoir. Now the windmill, I was always curious. I mean, uh, did the windmill have some sort of bypass valve so if the storage tank was full, it didn't waste the water and it would just recycle back down into the well? Well, no, I've never seen one that did that because most of these windmills uh, weren't putting out an awful lot of water. Okay, uh, three gallons a minute or better, uh, five. You know, they just weren't doing too much water. And plus, that water was going multiple directions from there. The troughs, they were all being used, and that water was being drank down, and that water was coming from that storage and going to those troughs, float valves down there controlled at the trough. And, and so the windmills rarely ever filled it totally up. But if it did, uh, they, they, the windmill has a brake on it, and you just go up there and pull the brake down, wire it to the side, and the windmill stops turning and doesn't pump water. Okay, I see. I see. Now, um, the other thing I wanted to ask you before we move on was that what was the average depth of a well in those territories where you were working? Well, I've worked in a lot of territories, but, um, you know, you go too deep, you're not going to have windmills. But uh, probably the average was, uh, I don't know what an average might be, but anywhere from three to 600 feet. Okay. uh, you know, and in other places, much deeper. And, and sometimes there was some oil and gas activity where they'd go a lot deeper and hit water, and sometimes ranchers would get that kicked off so they could use it as part of their lease agreement with oil company or something. Okay. And I'm, I'm just I'm just uh, speculating there. Right. I don't know if anybody actually did that. Yeah. Now, but, uh, so, we, so we got through. My, my first uh, position was there, and, and then... Uh, they came up with a deal to wanted somebody to go to Texas A&M to look at uh, recreational opportunities on ranches for money for ranchers to supplement their livestock. 
And I got selected for that. I went to A&M, got a master's degree while I was there. And then they put me in Bryan College Station, where Texas A&M is. And I worked about 20 counties as a wildlife biologist. Then then uh, did a lot of fish pond assessment. Uh, and uh, also had to do the forestry side of stuff over there. The three counties had forestry. But um, then, then I went from there to San Antonio as a district conservationist. Uh, in Bear County, Texas, and I worked kind of a, a mix of urban-rural conservation issues. And uh, then, but I wasn't there but 17 months before I was moved out there to the Trans-Pecos at Pecos and in that huge area there. And that was nine years. At the end of my time there, it had been nine years since I'd left A&M. And Washington, D.C. wanted somebody to go to Utah State University to look at non-traditional uses branches and I thought well that fits right in with what I did on my master's so I applied and lo and behold I got it so I got moved up to uh, Utah State so I, I'm a rare bird I got my master's and my PhD while on government salary oh wow no better way of doing that than, and then what is your actual PhD in I should know that but I don't recall it's in range science range science uh, range, okay. yeah but, but it, it was in re- with kind of a, qu- a quote unquote economics, parentheses economics after it. And what uh, s- what school was that from? That was at Utah State University. Utah State. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now and then you- I moved up to uh, move that, and now, oh, and of course I did my research back down in the Trans Pecos where I'd moved from, working with and interviewed ranchers all down there, and I'd been told twice that I wouldn't be able to get enough data. One at my master's because I sent mail surveys that back to the people I had worked with at Del Rio, and I, there was 109 ranchers as I told you all ago, the legitimate ranchers, and they said, "Well, that you'll get back like 10 surveys if you want your spinning wheels. You need to do something different." I said, "Oh, these people know me. I'll be all right." I got back 69 out of 109. Wow! And they were blown away that I had that kind of response. Then I went to Utah State and. Uh, did a mail survey in, in the Trans-Pecos Plus in uh, Central Oregon and did some comparative studies there. And then I went to back to the Trans-Pecos for the summer and to interview ranchers. And it's uh, quite a tale to be told in all those interviews. But got all that done, and then the government said, well, let's let's put him in uh, Portland, Oregon, and then work all 13 western states. So I worked from Montana to... Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, everything west, including Hawaii and Alaska. And uh, I was out there four years, uh, seven actually, uh, counting my three years at Utah State because I did travel some from there to do part of that job uh, while I was in graduate school. And then, uh, then I moved to Fort Worth. Uh, a year later, the agency changed its name from Soil Conservation Service to Natural Resource Conservation Service. And uh, we developed a Grazing Land Technology Institute, which our job then was to locate technologies from universities and ag research uh, service and any other source uh, to put some technology in the hands of the people back at the field office level like I was in my early career. Um, and I did that for seven years, and then the, the director for the state of Texas, Texas 
state conservationist, they call it. That position was open and uh, applied for that, and I got it. And I was there about five years and retired. Okay, so that's where you retired out of. Okay. Now, yeah. when you went out, did you, did, I know that there's a good deal of cattle in Hawaii, So, but it's really not the type of environment that you were used to in the western United States. So what did you do really in Hawaii for the cattlemen there? I learned. <laughs> <laughs> you took, I, so the lady delayed the, the, the first lady's lesson told you, right? That, that, yes, yes, absolutely. Plus, plus Hawaii had a state grazing specialist that knew the people, knew the places, and he was their best help. Okay. Uh, and and because uh, they've got uh, guinea grass, kakuya grass, they got grasses I never even heard of there. And basically my job was to go there and work with them, with their younger employees and some of their other employees in principles training rather than exactly what to do on the ranch. Okay. It's principles of how to work with people, how to how to look at the land, read the land, determine what it needs, that sort of thing. And I was only I only got to go out there twice, and one time I did that, and the other time I attended a meeting. Okay. And Alaska was always up there in the winter time because they asked me to come, and that's when they have their meetings is in the winter. Right. Uh, I didn't get to get out on any any land up there. Was there but, cattle? Is there cattle ranching in Alaska? There's some. But mostly it's uh, it's on Kodiak Island. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's uh, now also yeah. in your book you have uh, some quotes of some people, and I'm curious. This uh, Stephen J. Teo Kleberg. Yeah. And it's Theo Kleberg. Right. Is that the King Ranch? That is the King Ranch. Yes, that is. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Theo is uh, Theo's a graduate of Texas Tech. I'm a graduate of Texas Tech. A few years behind him. But uh, so we've got that connection, and and I've been invited down there several times in the past when I was still working uh, for the agency. But uh, also, uh, whenever uh, I got my show going, and we I guess we'd been on for about a season, season and a half. Well, T.O. called me and uh, said, "Larry, I think I think you could do some good shows down here on." Uh, at the Clayburg Wildlife Research Management Institute. He had some ideas, and and the Clayburg Foundation then paid for me to come down there, and I think it was to do three shows. And because we were there in one spot and not traveling, it was either to do three or four. Anyway, I did one more than what the contract called for. And so we had four or five episodes from there and one of them was on the king ranch not on the land show and t.o is interviewed in that ranch. so that I mean, so the king ranch is an actual working ranch oh absolutely it's it's an ab it's it's uh well over eight hundred thousand acres of actual working ranch it's not contiguous there uh, there is a big area of it it is but then there's another unit there's like three or four major units that they they call them, but they're all part of the King Ranch. They all operate as, as, as King Ranch. And uh, they, that was all started by uh, Captain, uh, uh, this one blank, the founder of King Ranch uh, back in, uh, uh, he was a sea captain. Really? And he came, came through there and rode and 
from down at Tupac, Texas, up to around Corpus Christi, and and he asked, "Well, I've seen a lot of land that doesn't look like anybody's on it because because there's no water, and there's one one water one one stream that runs through this area, and as soon as it was done, uh, Captain King. That's why it's called King Ranch. Why couldn't I think of that? <laughs> Captain King uh, bought that land his first purchase. And then he began to buy more and more and more and more. And of course, they could build ponds even back then with mules and Fresnos or whatever. And and uh, then eventually they drill wells and windmills. Anyway, the King Ranch is known for um, developing the Santa Gertrudis breed of livestock. Really? Yeah. So, T.O., uh, I can't give him enough thank yous. Even though I've tried, I thank yeah. you every time for having us down there and, and setting that up and and providing the money for us to come down and do the shows. Because when you're doing a show on RFC TV, uh, I know you're familiar with the show that yeah. you go down and you shoot like ten episodes in a weekend or whatever. Yeah, one well, day I had, used to do one day. <laughs> yeah, well, we had to travel, you know, anywhere from Pennsylvania to to Montana to Florida. To, Texas to New Mexico, we did shows all over, so it'd be maybe three days to get one show. Right, and so it costs a lot of money when you have to travel like that and pay for uh, the video crews and and meals and mileage and, and hotel oh, yeah. stays. You know, and then then you go to go to the editor and get all that done. So every every one of my shows, uh, you couldn't do it for this amount today, even, and it's only been what five. And a half years since we were on yeah. the air, but but my shows average between nine and ten thousand dollars an episode yeah, put on, and it's probably thirty thousand now, if not more. It probably would. It yeah. probably would. Be. Yeah, because that's what RFD told me. They said a half hour show is about thirty thousand dollars to put together. So yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's it's a uh, big money now. Uh, I just think it back. I mean, there's obviously there's a there's a mystique about the King Ranch, and me being a car guy, you know, there's the King Ranch Ford trucks, right? So, uh, right. Th- does the right. th- does the King the, the, does the King family own the ranch anymore, or has it been sold? Oh, the the uh, Captain King had one child, and, and it was a girl. Okay, and so family name on the ranch now is Clayburg. Oh, so the, oh, when you're saying Clayburg, that's the king, okay? Yeah, and Clayburg is yeah, it's still the King Ranch, but uh, the Clayburg family, uh, Clayburg Corporation. I don't know exactly right, right. how they're set up, but when they have uh, their stockholders meeting, so to yeah. speak, you know, you're talking hundreds of owners. Okay, uh, but but Tio is the last direct descendant of uh, Captain King that is living on the ranch. Wow. And when he's gone off the ranch, I don't think there'll be any more kings. Wow. That's, that's, that's really interesting. But it's some history and about what a blessing to, uh, to, to be part of, I mean, from the uh, declaration of independence and uh, to the King ranch and, and everything, and everything in between. What a blessed, uh, what a blessed journey this has been for you. It really, you know, it really has been. and, And a lot of that I had, Nothing to do with myself. You know, I don't have any anything to do with who were my ancestors. And had it not been for Theo giving me a call, I would not have gone down there. Right. And, uh, you know, it's just, 
things happen the way they do, uh, during my career, some of my, what I feel like are my greatest successes were on people that ranches that nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. Uh, you know, just good down to earth, salt of the earth people trying to make a living on their place. And there's a story about one of them in particular in there and several stories about things. One thing I'd bring up is a lady called me and asked me to look at a ranch back when I was in the office at Del Rio, uh, it's hers. And so I went out there, went on the ranch with her, her husband had passed away years before she had leased the ranch and she wanted to know my opinion of the grazing. <laughs> it was pretty much rocks. I said, uh, it's overgrazed terribly, ma'am. And she's well, I've got a, so many animal units are allowed to graze here. She says, what's an animal unit? Oh, so I had to explain that to her, uh, what makes up an animal unit. And then she went around later that day and counted and decided he had too many, called her lawyer. And the next morning, the guy comes in. He says, where's Larry Butler? I said, I'm here. What can I do to help you? He said, I'm the main Blankety blankety blanks going to flip your, you know what? Yeah. And he said, "You you just got me kicked off my lease." I oh. said, "I don't know what you're talking about." And he told me, "I said, he said you had no permission to be there." I said, "Well, sir, I was just uh, answering the request of the owner of the ranch that lives on it." And he goes, "Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You, you didn't have any permission to be there from me." Uh, I got to a mess. Wound up having to. The lady, I called her when he finally left. He he spent an hour basically chasing me around a big table I was at the maps on. Yeah. And I walked slowly around the table, and he did too, and I kept that table between me and him for an hour. <laughs> I mean, he was a brute. He could have taken me and put me inside a sardine can. But we went all the way around that table, and finally he left, and I called her, told her what happened. She calls the sheriff. The sheriff gets the restraining order placed against the guy, and and I never, ever saw him again. Oh, wow. Wow, that's, that's, well, what a story. You wouldn't think something like that would happen, but I guess when you're dealing well, with people, right? The point, the point there is there's a lot of landowners who have their land leased to someone else who have no idea how to manage that land because they weren't ever the operator of the land. Right. Or husband, she didn't. And, or they inherited it or whatever. And, and they may sign a lease and not know, like she didn't know, what an animal unit was. Right. And so a lot of landowners need to get educated on things they don't know, things they don't know that they don't know, you know, and, and so that they can be sure that their lessees are doing a good job. And most lessees will. Uh, most lessees will, but it's just good business to, to know what it is you're leasing and, sure. and how that can be managed. Well, well, I'm from New Jersey, so what is an animal unit? Because I'm in the same boat that she was. All right. Well, uh, basically an animal unit uh, back in time was defined as a 1,000-pound cow with a calf. Okay. And that that an animal unit will consume roughly 30 pounds of air-dry forage a day. Well, forage is generally green out there in the pasture. So you have to kind of clip some and set it in a paper sack for about a week and then dry it until you get 30 pounds of that so you can see in front of your face how much a cow is going to eat one day. And then you have to start figuring out how many days of grazing do I have here. And there's other ways to do it, but that's that's, that's one way. So 
So if your cattle weigh 1,500 pounds, then they're not one animal unit. They're one and a half animals. Right. You know, and takes about five sheep to equal one cow, one okay. animal unit. So that's what an animal unit is. Very, very interesting. And, and, and grazing is often leased out on an animal unit month basis. Okay. You have grazing the animal unit months, and so then you've got to know, okay, how, how much forage is that and how much do we have here on the ranch or the okay. pasture. They're going back to like that King Ranch just because it's so I'm so mystified by being able to meet someone who actually stepped foot on it. Is that what kind of, uh, how many acres would they need to support one cow on the King Ranch? Well, that's something I, I don't think I want to get into that because okay. that's their private business. Oh, but, okay. But, I'm, but I'll tell you this, um, and and I hope I haven't overstepped at this point with them, but it's, it's I understand your your. Uh, well, forget about the King Ranch. Say, in, you know, in that. Well, no, let me just say this: they they do a great job. Everything I've seen down there in their brush management, their wildlife management, their reseeding efforts, their their water developments and distribution, uh, and their grazing management is was top of the line. They've got they've got professional staff hired. Wow! They have PhDs working out there that not are just not university. We learned it in the laboratory PhDs. These are guys that have managed ranches. These guys have taken ranch management courses. They taught ranch management courses, and they have operated many, many large, large ranches. And uh, excuse me, <laughs> the King Ranch has got professional staff to handle everything, and they have to answer to the board of directors on what they're doing, and you know right. everything. The environmental side to the economic side, but that's about all I'm willing to oh, say. Oh no, no, I didn't. I didn't mean to, you know, to go into into uh, something, you know, that type of territory where I want you to divulge anything. Because I know, like a lot of people say, well, in you know, in in Florida, because there's a lot of cattle in Florida, that because of the rain and because of everything in the and the and the grasses there, they could support so many more cows per acre. That's all I was, you know, yeah, right. It right. was it was a and King Ranch, you know, they. They're they're on the upper end of, of what folks are in South Texas as far as okay. what they do. Okay. But I have worked on places from like on pasture land in East Texas and other places like that where you could run a cow to an acre, cow to two acres. Okay. Uh, all the way out to where uh, El Paso area and all out in that area, that desert out there. Yeah. Really, it's not not conducive to grazing because the economics of it but it would take a hundred acres really wow yeah well wow. and, and a cow spend all day looking for the next bite and then she, so she's just using up the calories that she took in so yeah. that's uh it's really not good grazing country whatsoever but it's got some really good wildlife out there that yeah. is aptitude that you know when you know, be, going out west, I've seen herds of wild mustangs, like out in western Nebraska, up in a panhandle over there, uh, north of Scotts Bluff. And uh, you know, you you look at that territory. I mean, it's it's beautiful to visit and to see, but it doesn't really seem to be rich in grazing land. But yet, these wild mustangs, where you see cattle someplace, and they they look healthy as healthy as anything. Well, you'd be surprised at, at how good the grazing land is out there. Oh, really? Uh, how those grasses are really strong. They hold their protein pretty well. 
and and those people that ranch out there, you know, they know what they're doing and they know how to do it right. Now you got to have enough acres to do it. Right. You know, you, you can't uh, do something on a hundred acres that they really need two thousand to do. Right. But you know that's that's what we did when when I worked for the conservation service. Our job was to analyze with the rancher what they've got, and and as I said, we're going to learn more than he is because uh, we're going to learn we're going to learn something we can take to another ranch. But it's to help them, uh, if not know the numbers they should have or could have, but un- understand uh, how much rest the grasses need in different areas because. Grazing grass anywhere is all about the shoot-to-root ratio. Okay. So the leaves versus the roots. And a a perennial range grass, if it's grazed, 50% of its annual growth is grazed, the roots are going to remain the same as they are. They're going to be healthy, um, and and they may stop growing just a little bit. If you take that further down, if you take it down to 65% use, then you're looking at stopping the root growth, and it takes, you know, 15 to 20 days, depending on where you are, what grass is talking about, longer for the roots to start growing back again. Okay. Because you got to grow shoots, you got to grow green, green leaves in order to get the photosynthesis to grow the, the, uh, sugars, the carbohydrates, they go down and feed the roots and grow better roots. Okay. So when when somebody grazes it down to the nub, if you could see below ground, the roots are down to their nub too. Okay. And not much of them left. And so um, it's all about helping people understand their grazing resources more than it is the cattle. Our agency, you've got extension service and others that help with the cattle. But our job's we're dealing with the natural resources. I see. Our very, 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 very interesting. Now, we spoke about as we get ready to, sadly, you're going to have to wrap this up soon. I mean, I'm loving it. It's fantastic. So we spoke about the first person, the first person's ranch that you went to. What was the last person's ranch that you went to before you retired? So now we'll bookmark at the beginning and the end. Well, when I retired, I was the state director, the state conservationist, so I wasn't out on the ranches per se doing the same kind of thing. I, I might go visit one with the local okay. employee. Uh, my job was to manage the people, the budgets, and the resources of the agency at that level. But uh, you know, we had I had seven hundred and thirty-one employees uh, when I retired, and uh, of course, I had fourteen people below me that I directly supervised and then they supervised groups, you know, right, right. But, um, it probably was on one of the soil conservation serve or soil conservation, soil water conservation district directors places. Uh, they were typically the leaders in the counties. And I can tell you this, if the local guy in a County knows that the head guy from the agency is coming He's going to line up the best guy he's got for him to go see. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> of yeah, course. You always do. You know, somebody isn't going to take you to see their their, their messed up uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, farm equipment unless they need you to help 
to help figure out how right. they yeah. can show, show off their best. You yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. Now let's so let me so I'll be like an attorney in the courtroom, and I'll rephrase, rephrase the question. So, do you recall the last ranch that you went to when your career transferred? So you weren't going to be in the field and doing, and your your career advanced to something else. Do you remember that particular ranch? Yeah, you're going all the way back. I mean, you don't have to give the particulars, but you're sometimes in life, you know, working off your 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 statement in the beginning of your book about the uh, the drops of water in a river going down the river never to return again you know lots of times in life we go and we we've done something we are passionate about it we love it and yeah. we we take it for granted and then our career or well, life in general takes you someplace else and you would uh i uh, as a metaphor no, my, my mother was a wonderful cook not because she was my mother but you know i often think back i said geez you know and then she got sick and then she passed away and i said if i really would have savored that last dish that she made that was my favorite more than right. i the more than i did so that's kind of the catalyst for my question for you if you remember that i mean you may not remember well, it i i can't remember you know exact last ranch for sure but i i can remember a lot of places that i went out on and worked with the landowner whose family didn't continue to own it okay and that's the saddest thing is seeing them divided up. Uh, ranches that were just the right size for the operation, uh, some of which are still operating really well, owned by somebody else. Others, their children may be running it, and others, uh, it got subdivided close to town. Uh, there's every kind of story in the book, but as far as a relationship with any one individual, um, you know. I, I would say it wasn't when I was down at Del Rio. It was when I was out in uh, working in the Grazing Land Institute on some ranches. Um, and back in Oregon, when I went out and helped people in those other states, um, there were some folks, they asked me to come help directly. And there's a story in the book, and I call those two people, Mary and John, that's not their name. But that story is worth reading I, I didn't know when I was there that uh, they were in so much trouble. I did know that he wanted to find a way to, to make more money, and he knew he couldn't put more cows out there. He'd be overgrazed. And I gave him a lot of ideas, and within just a few months after I was gone, you know, he had, he had used those ideas and uh, kept the wolves at bay financially with money that he earned. And I got invited back uh, two years later. The local guy, the local agency guy, calls me and says, "What? Um, what's your favorite kind of pie?" I said, "What?" <laughs> and, and so, and you know, make a long story short, he wanted to know my favorite kind of pie, and I finally said coconut cream pie. Well, I was coming to that that place two weeks later or so uh, to his his area. Went there, and what we do? We drove right back to John and Mary's place. And I said, well, we've been here. Yeah, I know, but we're coming back. We get there, and there's the dining room table, and it's got saucers and plates and cups. And there's a great big piece of pie at the end, like a quarter of the pie, coconut cream, sitting at the end at the head table. And then smaller pieces at other places in an empty spot. We come in there and sit down, and the lady sits down at the empty spot. I said, listen, 
cut this piece in half and get you a piece of pie, too. She said, no. Uh, and she reached around and opened a bureau drawer, took out a line tablet and a pen, put it in front of her, and says, this is what I should have done the first time you were here. I'm going to take notes. I've got pie in the kitchen when I want pie. <laughs> and that was one of the biggest rewards of my career. Is wow. Having people saying, I should have listened to you the first time. Because her husband did, right. and they and they incorporate some things, and and uh, I had no idea how much more I increased their income from my ideas. I did not know it until that second. Time. Well, well, that that's that's wonderful to uh, to know to be able to see that not for accolades, just for that you help the people, you help the ranch stay alive, you help the family stay alive. I mean, that's really you know gets back and to, they and they raised. They raised the boy who was four when I was there the first time, and now I understand he's in his thirties and he is helping his dad run the ranch. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, that legacy, and you know, gets back to what we were talking about in the beginning: being a good steward of the land. Conservation is such a broad-based term, and people put it in that they put it in a box. But it's you. You've helped people not only conserve the land, but to conserve the lifestyle that they loved, and they had exactly. to. They had the soil. I mean, you know, even over here at our farm in New Jersey, I mean, it's not a ranch, but, you know, you, you grow up and you have that soil in your hands and you get out there and, I mean, we raise corn, we don't raise cattle, but you, you know, you cry over, you cry, I mean, so many times was my field watered with my tears, you know what I'm saying? And then other times it was watered with the tears of gratefulness to see the bounty of God's blessings upon it. So it's just a potpourri of every emotion possible. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and it's... Well, uh, um, you know, conservation is, is an ever-ending endeavor. Yes. Uh, I, I had a bureaucratic chief of the agency one time saying, well, we've almost worked with everybody in the country. We, we can close her down. And I said, whoa. Well. You know, what exists today exists because of people continuing to do what they do. Uh, and that's to make things better, and it's not better everywhere in the country. Um, so it's a never-ending endeavor. The farmer and the rancher, I mean, like right now, many are going through drought. Other times, many are going through floods. Yes. Other times, they're going through depressed markets. I mean, there's always something yeah. that is causing an effect on the land based on their actions. So I, my hat goes off to all the good stewards out there that, taught me all these successful secrets of conservation and uh, I'm so honored the good Lord gave me the, the healthy life to go through I mean I had a few health problems along the way but I made it through a, a great career uh, helping people help the land and uh, really kind of feel like part of, uh, of what he told uh, Adam and Eve yes you know you're 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 you know and your job is to have dominion over the animals and and the earth, and that didn't mean overuse it. It meant go out there and use it wisely, which is what the definition of conservation is. Exactly, wisely. and a lot of people you know, use the word dominion, and as I say to people, is that the word dominion is like the captain of a ship. 
when the good Lord gave us dominion over the land, he made us responsible and accountable for it. It doesn't mean yeah. it's a free-for-all. When, you when you're in the Navy and the captain of the ship has dominion over all the sailors, but he's the one who's supposed to go down with the ship, and if things go wrong, he's the one who's called in front of the SECNAV to explain what happened, not the guy, not the guy in there with the mop mopping the deck. So it's dominion is uh, is something is a responsibility. But it's, I would like to uh, to how can people get a hold of your book? And I believe that you have a website. And I also believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that your episodes of Out on the Land are starting to be posted on YouTube. And I also want to and uh, tell people that your show was so well received. It was a matter of economics and sponsorship changes in the business climate that that put put an end to it. Not yeah, not, it was a change in the in the business of my major sponsor. They they. Uh, uh, merged with another company and the entire staff all changed and no one I knew was there and, and, and sponsoring a TV show wasn't their idea so that's what happened right. lost the major sponsor yeah but, but uh, you know that um, I'm trying to find something I had a note I wanted to be sure to mention it back to uh, how they get a hold of the book uh, same place they can see these they the episodes I do have up there, which there's only nine or ten of them up right now, uh, are on my website. They're not on YouTube. They're on okay. my website. So you can go to Out on the Land, all run together, no spaces, no dots, no dashes, outontheland.com. And uh, with that, you get uh, get the website. And if you look at the little bar across the top, you'll see a a menu and click on TV show to see episodes and click on buy the book, see the book. And, and you can click on buy the book and not buy it. You can just click on it and read about it. If you decide to buy it, you can buy it right there. And if you don't care to, well, then you can just go on. So, just because it's by the book doesn't mean you have to right, buy right. The book. Well, it's I, I, you know, it's an it's an excellent, excellent book. I would, and it's a it's a wonderful story. It's a very easy read. It's a very rich read, and it it, it tells the story of of not only your life, but it, it, it there's a lot of hidden messages there and subliminal messages that bring uh, bring a lot of value to the reader. So I strongly suggest that it's a uh, and you know what's great about it is that it, like I said, it's a simple read. Uh, you find yourself reading more pages in one setting than you originally thought that you were planned on reading when you sat down but it's a great great resource and so are the tv shows and you know your whole life was in conservation your whole your whole your your whole passion was in conservation working with with ranch lands and ranchers and uh and wildlife but little did you know when you started that journey when you stopped being an electrical engineer that you would help a sweet corn farmer and a sweet corn farmer is the opposite end of the spectrum of a rancher out in west texas yeah but, i understand but but yeah we did some shows on on uh, some lands and different states that you said uh, you got information from that you applied to your farm yes yes i mean water infiltration and just uh i think that was in coffee county or something coffee county texas coffee county tennessee, tennessee yeah, 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 yeah yeah adam doherty he's the district conservationist for the yeah. nrcs over yeah. there and 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 there. Uh, and you know and the other thing basically is somebody may be listening to say well i'm a dairy farmer i don't care or i don't I'm not, i mean that's a great story but i'm not interested in it or i'm a, a row crop guy or i'm a, a poultry 
whatever it may be. And that's why I was bringing up about the sweet corner, about the value of your TV show. Because mm-hmm. in, in, in life, you you may not be, it, it's, it's not cookie cutter where you can go and say, well, you know, what I've learned, for instance, like we spoke about before, we went on the air was that the i saw the episode where you, did, you spoke about a, a a drought plan for a ranch well okay i don't have a ranch all right or you, right. May, you may have but the concept conceptually having some sort of plan may not be called a drought plan and maybe called something else but that's yeah. what but the, i so many things i took away from what you had taught which i could not apply one-to-one because i'm not cattle ranching but the concept right. opened but up you know you mentioned Dairy Farm. You mentioned a whole lot of others when, in this, when you first started talking here. We actually did a show on nearly every one of those things you talked about uh, when we were doing Out on the Land. And even though it was not something I knew a lot about, I knew that the people running it were going to right. right, right, right. Yeah, so it's it's wonderful. So don't be closed, you know, in anything in life. Don't be closed-minded and say, well... I mean, I'll go to a seminar on raising soybeans. I mean, granted, I would look for a return on investment. I wouldn't maybe drive to South Dakota for it, but if it was 100 or 200 miles away, I know I could go to a class and learn something that even if it's one little thing that I could apply to my life or my farm, then that was of great value. As we get ready to close here, what I would like to ask you to do, Larry, is I'm going to put you on the spot. I know you have you have grandchildren. I know you have children. I know you have a large audience out the world. What would you like to say to, as 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 Larry Butler, the man, the conservationist, not the PhD, not the government the government guy coming on to the land and telling the guy he's going to put a pipeline there and you're going to fight. He's going to fight with you. But right. but farmer to farmer, man to man, Christian to Christian. What, and I know I'm putting you on the spot, but what would you like to say as we get ready to close? Well, you're not putting me on the spot because what I'd like to say to the entire world, and generally we can just do this one-on-one with people, but I, my belief in God and in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus Christ is so strong that I will give up being anyone's friend if they get mad at me for talking about that, because if I lose you as a friend over that, I'm going to lose you as a friend in heaven. And, and we, we all need to get there. And so it's better to lose somebody temporarily than permanently. Yes. And, and so spread the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ and get as many people back to him. Number one, it'll help our country immensely. But number, the biggest number one is that it can save your soul and you'll spend eternity in paradise, heaven, rather than, than the other place. In the and lake now, of fire. Yes, exactly. So yeah. that's more important. And in fact, that's, hey, that's conservation. Yeah, I was just going to say that. You, you took the words out of my mouth. You're conserving your souls. Soul. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hey, you know, the difference between soil and a soul is only you and I. 
<laughs> that's right that's right yeah yeah you're right well listen i i wish we could go on longer but i want to thank you so so much it's been wonderful to get to know you like i said i've watched you on tv and uh learned so much from you read your book and uh, laughed and 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 you know chuckled and laughed and uh, got choked up and it's a wonderful story and i want to honestly say that you've been a blessing blessing to so many people uh, throughout the world with the the with the knowledge and opportunities the lord gave you when you shared them and you didn't keep them buried for your own value or for your own good and you shared them and it's just been the and it's been true honor larry to represent you to my audience and i just want to thank you so much for your for your time today ray i have received many awards from different organizations from universities from the agency I worked for. Uh, I've received awards for having a TV show, but I've never had a higher honor than the words that you just shared with me. That that means so much that uh, that, that you, what you told me, I know it's coming from your heart. I know you want your listeners out there to, to hear this or you wouldn't have spent this much time with me. Uh, I want you to consider me a friend. You can call at any time, podcast or no podcast, and and we will visit. So, uh, got my number. Uh, all of the rest of you get on the website, and you'll learn a little more about me. Uh, if you want to buy the book, it it doesn't cost much. It's like twenty bucks plus shipping, so it's uh, it's easy to get, and it's a pretty easy read. I. I may have a PhD, but I don't write in technical terms. I write just at all. Yeah, and then you know that goes both way, Larry's. I I consider you a friend, and one day, you know, no podcast. You got to tell me about that Buick your wife bought with the Pontiac engine, but that's not today's show. All right, so, uh, so yeah, we do uh, need to talk about that. We got a little problem, <laughs> <laughs> so we have to do that. And uh, and you know, hey, God willing, our paths cross one day uh, in 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 this earth. But if not, I know that they will definitely cross in the kingdom. And as I get ready to sign off, I want to thank. Thank everyone for listening. Please, please apply the lessons that that Larry has in his book, and, and you've heard it, and you could you could learn from his show and know that uh, I thank you all for listening. And hey, where will we be next time? We don't know, but we're going to be on the road to someone that's as passionate as Larry. Please stay on the line as the show ends, Larry. <laughs>